Hello, everyone, and welcome. If you are a sports fan or just happen to be super competitive by nature, you can't help but marvel at the extraordinary abilities and performance of some of these professional athletes today. I mean, to most of us, are superheroes or superhuman. But I think what you're about to find out from David Epstein as he's done in his epic book, The Sports Gene, I think there's a lot more to that than they're just their superpowers. And uh, hopefully we'll get into that today a little bit. David, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. First off, I've kind of said to you a million times, brilliant work. And as somebody who's a competitor and a sports fan of, and a student of human potential, your work is very convincing. So I just want to start off with, with a dumb question. I mean, we're in the middle of, you know, NFL teams spending millions and millions of dollars on some unproven players. And as you observe what's going on in that process of evaluating talent, I mean, if you were a general manager of one of these football teams, how would you approach this evaluation process? That's a really good question. I think one of the things I would do first is I would dispense with a lot of the combine measurements. Um, I think some of the, and I think teams value those to greater and lesser degrees, but they all do somewhat. And just for example, you know, the most important measurement at the combine is the 40, yep. right? The 40, aside from being something that almost no positions on the field ever do, so aside from having very little functional relevance, it has a hand-timed finish, uh, not an automatic electric timing. And the, the studies have shown that the variation, just the variance in hand-timing error is equivalent to the entire variance between players in a given position. Right? So that measurement is almost, worth, almost totally worthless. The second most important measurement is the bench press. Bench press is much easier for guys who have short arms and what's called a low brachial index, which is the ratio of the forearm to the total arm, which is exactly the opposite of what you want on the field for guys who need to push people away from them. So by, by prizing the bench, you may in fact be selecting against a trait you want on the field. And I, so I think the combine is uh, theater, not science. And I would create we know better measurements. I would use better measurements for that kind of evaluation, nothing that's at the combine. Which is pretty fascinating. And I see especially the, the, the 40 just at pro days, watching some of these athletes and some of these scouts at pro days. I mean, they're literally, every, if there are five scouts there, they get five different times. I mean, it, and, and in addition to that, you know, when, would you, if you had a combine for um, – sumo wrestlers and one guy ran four eight and one guy ran five flat would you bet on the guy that ran four eight to win the sumo wrestling match that's like what linemen are doing and it has nothing to do with running the 40 nothing which makes a lot of sense now david you've talked a lot about measuring the upside or measuring the potential of an athlete how do you mean how do you start to think about somebody's upside i mean yesterday the upside of these 32 kids that were taken is huge yeah. yeah, that's a that's a great question, and I think um, one of the things, sort of part of the revolution that's coming out of exercise genetics right now is pretty similar to the one that came out of medical genetics in some ways. So medical genetics taught us that because I have a different gene involved in acetaminophen metabolism than you do, I might need three Tylenol while you only need one, or maybe no amount works for me. And similarly, exercise genetics is finding that because of differences in genes, no two people respond to a given training stimulus the same way, um, to, to sort of the, ex the medicine of training. And 
importantly, oftentimes baseline ability in a certain athletic skill has a zero correlation with ability to improve um, or, or what sports scientists call trainability. So that means that if you take a bunch of people, uh, you know, who basically haven't practiced a certain skill or at the same level of practice, and you pick, you, know, you have 100 people and you say, well, these 10 are the best right now, you're very likely going to miss the people who will be the best eventually because what you want is trainability, not baseline ability. And so I think the challenge now is to find ways to evaluate trainability. In some cases, that's rather easy in things like in endurance training and more complex skills. Um, it can be a bit more difficult, but not impossible. It's hard to argue with your book that genetics matter. I know it's real. I know it's science. You know, I have no control over it. But here's a point that most people don't realize. You and I can have the exact same training regimen, as you mentioned, but we'll have different results. I, I, I rarely hear people talk about that. What causes that? Yeah, and that's because the physiological adaptations that occur when you train uh, and this, this includes, there's now some evidence that I added actually to the new afterword of the book about genes that are involved in um, chemicals that reorganize the brain when you learn a skill. Genes m help mediate how much improvement you get from any given type of training. Right? This is why no fad diet works for everybody, why no exercise fad works for everybody, why no group of five people who train the same way will become identical, even if they're doing all the same training stimulus. Um, and, and it really, I think, poses the challenge to us of finding the environment that, that training is this biological exploration through which your challenge is to find out the optimal environment for your completely inimitable biology. And Dave, it, it, you know, a lot of people, including yourself, talk about technology and technology obviously had huge impact on sports and training in particular. But during that period, I mean, haven't you seen athletes and trainers also become smarter? Oh, no question about it. No question about it. And I think not, not just not, – I'm smarter in a lot of ways, I would say. And not only smarter about training, but also smarter about recovering from training. There's a great study that came out just after the Sochi Winter Olympics. So the Dutch speed skaters just destroyed the yeah, world. Yeah. Right? Like it was just amazing. And right after that, they put out a study that was chronicling 38 years of training changes among Dutch Olympic speed skaters. And what they did was they moved from threshold training, threshold training being, you know, just to put it in a really small and simplified nutshell, basically uh, if you consider sort of your lactate threshold to be how, how much the intensity you can exercise after about an hour, most people are doing some, you know, 70, 80, whatever percent of that threshold every time they train. And most of the training they're doing is at moderate intensity. It's called threshold training. The Dutch moved completely to what's called polarized training, meaning they do nothing at moderate intensity. Everything is either ridiculously easy or way over capacity such that they can't sustain it for any long time. And that really seemed to cause physiological adaptation for them. So they went with the approach that um, lifting the same weight the same number of times every day isn't going to cause physiological adaptation. So we need to go so easy and do so much recovery and so much sleep that when we do have an intense session, it's way above capacity. They now have zero moderate intensity training budgeted in for their Olympic speed skaters. Everything's really easy or really, really hard. They're actually training, spending much less time in training in terms of duration than they did in the past 
but they're getting incredible results. And I think there's a trend toward polarized training at, at all elite levels of sports. Have you tried it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I moved toward polarized training in my own. So it, in, I was a national-level middle distance runner, and I was a better runner on, uh, at all distances on 35 miles a week of targeted intense intervals than I had been on 90 miles a week of distance. And actually, that's even what I'm doing now just sort of for, for health purposes. Like I'm taking lots of rest. Some days I'm, I'm not even working out, which is unusual for me. But when I am, you know, at least once a week, I'm doing a workout that, that like, you know, almost renders me incapacitated. <laughs> and like, and so is that workout, that crazy workout, is it typically shorter than, you know, what you had normally done before? Mine is composed of the one I'm doing right now is, uh, so I call a, a 3000 stair workout. So there's a park near me that has three flights of stairs and two flats between the flights and each up all three flights is a hundred stairs total. And so I go up as hard as I can sprinting between the flights too. And so one interval of a hundred stairs and then down as slow as I want. And I do 30 and I can break them up into sets. However, I want 18, 12, one set of 30, whatever I want. But by the end, I'm, uh, my butt's locked up and I've got a headache. <laughs> Hey man, I can vouch for that. One of the things I want to share with you, the one of the first triggers that crossed my mind as I finished your book and kind of internalized it was, you know, Wayne Gretzky's quote that I think just gets misused a lot of times about skating where the puck is going. It yeah. became apparent to me that that's a defining trait of these yeah. elite athletes. That that's exactly right. And so a lot of things, you know, it it, it was not long ago at all that there were um, you know, coaches and, and selection officials in hockey and soccer and volleyball who were testing reaction speeds of athletes to decide who to put in what position. It turns out that has nothing to do with anything because elite athletes don't have any faster reaction time than teachers, doctors, lawyers. I outscored, I scored faster than Albert Pujols on a simple reaction time test. Um, and uh, what really sets them apart is their ability to process visual information in a way that tells them what's happening in the future, anticipatory information, basically. And so, you know, when you hear quarterbacks saying the game slows down or Gretzky's ability to anticipate what's coming or see what's happening before it happens, that comes from specific kinds of practice that allow you to encode basically positions of players and their body movements to tell what's going to happen before it happens. Because frankly, the game unfolds too quickly if we had to rely just on our reaction speed. Dave, what's fascinating about that is that I think we can all learn something from that. So just from your perspective, what can an entrepreneur who are, who's just kind of risking everything in a venture, what can we learn from that? How can we anticipate the future a little bit differently so it can slow down for us like game slows down for these athletes? Yeah, so the, the key and what the, the training changes that have been made um, – you know, it's because of this science are sort of twofold. One is bringing what scientists call ecological validity to, to the training that you do, and that means simulating a game environment very closely. Um, but not, and not only that, but usually sort of compressing the environment so that you're being forced to anticipate even more rapidly than you normally would. So, you know, in, in Brazil, the development game that they use there is called futsal, and it's like soccer but played – with fewer people and in a tiny indoor area. And so it really forces the players to stretch their anticipatory capabilities. And chess players, 
which is, you know, it's a cognitively complex field, they do something really similar, playing speed chess or they're playing computer chess where they're being exposed to chunks, basically. Chunks being, um, you know, arrangements of pieces that become meaningful as they learn them and allow them to predict the future. And I think for any cognitively complex skill, whether it's uh, making, you know, in investment choices, you have to find a way to train yourself by exposing yourself to as similar as possible scenarios until certain patterns basically start to have meaning that allow you to anticipate. And you might, the problem is you might not be able to articulate the same, the same way that Wayne Gretzky can't necessarily articulate what he's seeing that allows him to see the future. You might not be able to perfectly articulate what it is um, that makes you instinctively understand that a choice you're making is, is right. So in addition to learning it, there also has to be some kind of basically faith or confidence in your gut, essentially. Dave, how do you, you know, having covered sports at the highest level for a long time, and how do you define athletic excellence? When do you say, wow, this person, you know, f- male or female, is just at the la creme de la creme? Wow, that's a, that's a tough question, you know, because when I look at something like, say, say you look at a, uh, the world championships of the hundred meters, for example, last year, right? Where Usain Bolt obviously wins, uh, going away, you might say, but he's 0.5% faster than the guy in second place. 0.5% is the difference between a guy who's a living legend and a guy who almost nobody can name even. Hmm. And, and so that's kind of an, in, you know, an incredible thing to just, be able to get 0.5% on the world. But to me, I, I like a little bit of a broader definition. And I, I sometimes see athletic feats where someone sort of gets into a place where the, the things they're doing, whether by themselves or within a team, seem to be so naturally integrated to their purpose um, that it's almost like they're outside of themselves in a way. Um, and, and, their body is just becomes kind of a vehicle for their ambition. Basically. I mean, I would say like the most possibly the most impressive athletic feat I've seen in person was at the Vancouver winter Olympics by a, a Slovenian skier named Petra Majdic, who was a favorite in the 1.6 K sprint in the warmups. She has four rounds that day. The whole, all the rounds take place that day in the warmups. She slides off an icy edge, falls into a dry Creek bed, breaks all her ribs on one side of her body has to start the first round like 15 minutes later, is just like screaming in pain. They're giving her MRIs between rounds and saying, well, it doesn't look like it's broken. It's just pain. Turned out it was broken. They just couldn't catch it in time. After the third round, one of her ribs snaps, cracks off, and, and punctures her lung. That's right. So now she got a punctured lung, wins the bronze, and then just collapses and gets like carried out of there. I talked to her later, and she said, had they told her her ribs were broken, she wouldn't have gone, but they were telling her, oh, it's just pain. And as long as it was just pain, she said, you know, this is something I've been working for for years now. I've been snake bit at past Olympics. Just pain will not stop me. And I think she was just able to, like, separate her body as if it was somebody else's because she was so goal-oriented at that point. And it was just an incredible thing to see. The mind is an incredible thing. And the rise to the top, David, is not always linear, right? I mean, do you see tangible correlations between, say, a young athlete's early success and, and their ultimate achievement in the pros? 
You know, I, I think it's pretty different than what most people assume. So there's, again, it's something I just added um, into the new afterword of the book is there's a tennis study that looks at a number of, of tracks, a number of young athletes, five of whom went on to become top 15 tennis players in the world. And actually, the kids who were the highest ranked at the really early ages, none of them went on to become um, top players in the world. And a lot of them even quit. Uh, by by the time they were still teenagers, some of that I think was because they were just early physical matures, and somebody mistook that for um, ultimate potential and started driving them really hard really early, and they basically quit. Um, but the athletes who ultimately got to the top diversified their sports experience a little bit, which I think did two things: one, taught them a range of skills that they could transfer, but also helped them really find the sport that fit both their biology and their psychology. So they got into something they actually loved. They didn't, they, they even learned a little bit how to lose when they were younger because they, they were being beat by people who were sort of training more early on. And then they surpassed them later on. And so the actual typical route to athletic excellence is not the Tiger Woods route. It's the Steve Nash route. Steve Nash didn't even own a basketball until he was 13 years old. Yeah. It's eight years behind me. You know, Roger Federer route. Roger's parents were, were as one of my colleagues uh, called him in his biography, uh, pulley, not pushy. They forced him to continue playing basketball, badminton, soccer, um, at least for a little while. And that actually turns out to be the typical route, even though the Tiger Woods, that one story is like the one we hear all the time. It is the one we hear all the time. So how do you explain somebody like Tom Brady? He wasn't a standout growing up. He'll end up in the Hall of Fame. You know, how, does, how do you find somebody like that? That's a great question. I mean, I think Tom, sometimes I think his athleticism is a little underrated because little known fact, he was also drafted by the Montreal Expos as a catcher. So when people say his arm isn't strong, I think the, I've seen the Expos draft evaluation and they didn't feel that way. Um, but, you know, I think, I think a number of things. One, you know, and not to, not to uh, deny him any credit, but also I think systems are so incredibly important for quarterbacks and stability. Yeah. Right? Like if you tell me that a quarterback had four different coaches, um, you know, 37 different offensive linemen and 20 different receivers over six years, I'll show you a quarterback who failed yeah. and I don't care who they are. So I think stability is incredibly important. And I think his sort of emotional stability as well. You know, he seems like a guy who didn't panic by um, having to sort of sit back and learn for a little while incredibly calm under pressure. And I think that makes, uh, other guys sort of rally around him. I think he's a, he's a leader by example. Um, and I think he is confident enough to sort of do what he's good at and not worry about the rest. You know, he's, he's, he, he just feels like a guy to me who never, never is throwing downfield in a forced way because he's always, he, he's always willing to sort of read the defenses and take the best options instead of, um, you know, trying to force things. And I think that comes from sort of a kind of inner confidence with his own training. Let me contrast that with something. He just reminded me of something. I heard Dwight Howard say something the other day I'd like to get your perspective on. After they were eliminated by the Blazers, he said that he and a bunch of teammate, a bunch of his teammates, he felt, got lazy at times during the series and it came back to bite them. Now, you'd never hear Tom talk, talk like that. You'd never hear LeBron talk about that. What does that say to you? I mean, the, you know, as much as I like honest interviews with athletes, I don't think, I can't imagine that sort of endears him to the guys, you know, that he's supposed to be 
uh, kind of propping up and, and the fact that he felt the need to vent it uh, in that way, you're right. I don't think you would see Tom, Tom Brady say that. Because you know, obviously teams have a lot of – they build a lot of the qualities of families. They uh, – a sense of brotherhood, a sense of being in it together, um, and an ability to be able to talk to one another directly when there's a problem. And that tells me that that might not have existed there, right? Like there's no such thing as a team that's not going to have problems. Like there's no such thing as a family that's not going to have problems. Um, but I think it's a problem if if it's coming up in a you know a press conference or an interview and not something that the team members themselves can uh, can sort of address. Yeah, I think there's a, there's the reason why he hasn't won championships. It seems to me, David, that there, everyone is chasing their potential, and few will ever stretch their capabilities or capacity to get there. What makes potential so damn elusive? Yeah, you know, I, I want to use, and maybe this will sound stupid, but I want to use a speed typing analogy here. So when I was doing research for my book, I ended up reading expertise study in a lot of areas, you know, chess, music, some of that's included in the book. And speed typing is one I came across, which is not included in the book. But it became really clear to me after reading speed typing study after study that what most people do is we, we learn how to type, we get pretty fast, and then we stagnate at good enough. That's it. We stay at good enough. And the way that, that people who train uh, uh, speed typists who have to do this for work to get faster is they set a metronome for them, and they make it just – and they have to practice speed typing, and they make it just a little bit faster you know, each day or each two days or each three days and say, don't worry about mistakes. Just keep up with the metronome no matter what. I know it's going to feel too fast. Don't worry about those mistakes. Keep up with it no matter what. And it presses their capacity. It gets them out of that good enough plateau, and they get a little bit better and a little bit at a time. And then if you look at that metronome having moved once every other day for two years, suddenly they're twice as fast. But I think it requires finding um, that way to get yourself off the good enough plateau. And that that's not natural, and that's not easy, and it's not the most comfortable thing. And And that combined with the fact that the push toward earlier and earlier hyper-specialization of everyone and everything, whether that's youth athletes or whether that's people in their job right after they get out of college or whatever, um, the earlier you push selection for anyone in any endeavor, the more likely you get the wrong person in the wrong place. So I think not enough chance for sampling to find your right fit and then just our natural capacity to stop at good enough plateaus. And I mean, but so it all starts with the brain then. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> everything interesting we've had some compelling conversations for and against the 10,000 rule i saw i saw your your time with malcolm and <laughs> i see how that where you come from and i i mean it's very interesting i mean are you convinced one way or the other cuz we don't wait to have 10,000 hours to compete at anything no and so i am convinced that the 10,000 hours rule has gotten out of control and that it's not sort of what it's portrayed to be um, and I'm not the only one that's convinced. Anders Ericsson, who's the scientist who led the work that led to the 10,000 hours, has been sort of so dismayed by the popular translation that he has a letter linked on his faculty webpage now at Florida State called The Danger of Delegating Education to Journalists. That's <laughs> a pretty, pretty ominous title. Um, now, if, if 10,000 hours is uh, just shorthand for practice is really important, like, of course I agree with that. But that was never controversial. And I think the focus that Erickson has put on, on quality of practice, 
an effortful practice and recovery from effortful practice so that you can have more effortful practice is wonderful. But the way that I've seen the 10,000 hours translated, I mean, I was at the Australian Institute of Sport in the fall, and a coach who was visiting showed me his plan to take youth soccer players from age 8 to 18 in exactly 10,000 hours of practice. You know, I asked him, have you read the primary paper? Do you know this is a tiny violin study from people who are already in a world-famous academy? Of course he didn't. And that, and because that kind of hyper-specialization is turning out to be exactly the opposite of what we should do with youth athletes, both for health reasons but also for skill development, there I think it's damaging. And that's where I think it needs to be uh, reassessed. Well, I mean, you personally have always been a competitive athlete. You're, I mean, you're, you're competitive right now in what you do. I mean, turn the clocks back for a moment for me. Knowing what you know now, would you have approached your training any differently? And do you think you would have gotten farther if you wanted to? Uh, well, yes, <laughs> yes. And yes. Um, I, uh, well now I've had a lot of like physiological testing that would inform my training, but let's say I didn't have that cause turn back the clock and most people don't have access to that anyway. Um, I, uh, wasted a couple years doing high volume training when I was a runner and had I been taking, I didn't even need fancy physiological testing. Had I just been taking a trial and error approach to my training and thinking about my own biology instead of looking at the guys next to me and saying, well, this is working for them, so it's going to work for me too, I would have realized really early that I was not doing the right kind of training for me. So eventually I came down from 90 miles a week to 35 miles a week of very targeted high-intense intervals, and I was better at every distance. But it took me two years to figure that out, which was a pain. So I absolutely think I, um, I, I could have gotten better if I – uh, had continued going for longer and sort of, um, you know, moved more distractions out of my life and, and gotten the right training group around me. Absolutely. And one thing I would have applied that I actually applied everything I do now. Uh, so in the book, I write about the groaning and talent studies in the Netherlands, which are tracking studies of kids from age 12 up to the pros in a variety of sports, particularly soccer, where the Netherlands is really good. And one thing they find, they sure they find certain physical characteristics that separate the kids that go to the pros, like the slow kids never become fast and you have to have a certain minimum speed, but they find self-regulatory behavior, which is basically a type of reflection that leads you to become the own sort of orchestrator of your own development. And those scientists have sort of distilled a number of questions that athletes who go to the top ask either explicitly or implicitly over and over. It's things like, you know, what, what, what is my goal? It doesn't have to be realistic at the moment. What steps does it take to get there? How will I learn even better what it takes to get there? What people will I need to help me? How will I make sure those people are going to be there to help me? It's this constant kind of reflection. When I first read these questions, I thought they were kind of facile. And then I started um, using them in relation to some of my own professional goals and found out that I was never answering them the same two times in a row. So they're actually not as simple as they seem. And I would have applied self-regulatory behavior and that kind of reflection to everything I do. And I'm, I'm trying to incorporate it into more things I do now. Then it applies to all of us. Again, it doesn't matter whether you're youth or whether you're still you know, somebody who's at the top of your game in the pros. One interesting thing that I, I want to get your perspective on, very few professional athletes evolve into being as successful outside sports as they are inside sports. We see LeBron James doing it, obviously Michael and Magic and Peyton Manning and so forth. Do you see any correlation between somebody's competitiveness off on the field with their success off the field? 
That's actually interesting you asked that because you know, I was just talking about this Netherlands study in self-regulatory behavior. And in those studies, you know, and some of these, some of these kids that they started studying when they were 12 are now like Premier League soccer players. Um, the, the athletes who showed the most self-regulatory behavior in sports were the ones who did the best outside of sports whether that was in school or business or whatever they were doing later. So I think there is a, a transfer of that skill um, for for some athletes and for those that, you know, because sort of starting over and, and doing something totally new, you're talking about in many cases, um, you know, athletes retire, they not only lose their identity, but they're they're kind of where someone who just got out of college is in many ways, like entering another world for the first time. So they're facing an uphill battle, and I think if they don't have some of that, uh, that sort of capacity for, uh, for reflection and obviously social skills, it's, it's going to be a tough time for them. You've interviewed a lot of people, especially for the book. Is there like one or two interviews that like particularly stood out for you and just kind of captivated you? There, there's a guy I wrote about, and this is not in the book, um, named Ben Helfgott, who is the only living person to have survived the Holocaust and become an Olympian. And not only that, but he became the head of this society called the boys, which was like about 800 kids, mostly boys, almost all boys who were orphaned in world war two, who were then brought over to England and sort of resettled and integrated into society. And I went out to meet him to, to write an article about him and was amazed to sort of learn the stories of, these boys who'd become his sort of family that he'd become the leader of because all these things that happened to them that you sort of associate with becoming horrible adults, basically. And they had unbelievable lives. I think there was a Nobel prize winner among them. There were sort of captains of industry, artists, you know, best-selling writers. And it was fascinating for me to hear him talk about both the role of sort of sports in his own rehabilitation, but also how that group became his family and I have to imagine that something about that is what prevented them from experiencing what we normally associate as the, the results of all so manner of childhood trauma. So environment matters. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it was like a big team, you know. And, and, and the sad part of it is now, you know, those guys are getting older. And so him being so close to them, him having 700 or 800 brothers, now obviously a lot of them are passing away. And, and, and that's, that's really difficult for him. But everything that he was talking about was just really, really fascinating to me. Okay, here's my last question. What is that gene that you have that keeps you looking 18? And can that be manufactured? <laughs> well, I can tell you my dad's the same way. Um, so I'm not even sure I've made it uh, to, to 18 yet. But, yeah, I know. I, I don't know. If I, if I knew that, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd be uh, putting it in a bottle. Um, I, I wonder the same I mean, thing. How do you I have stay no so young? How do you – I mean, I know athletically you're, you're – you're, you're physical and and you probably have very strict nutritional habits, but I mean, how do you stay looking so damn young? I really have no idea. Like I said, I, I really hope that it doesn't, you know, it's not like, you know, pulling the cord on a life vest and I'm just going to like age overnight at some point. Um, but I have, I have no idea. I mean, my father also looks young and you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm not far off my old racing weight and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I, get good sleep and when I can, you know, when I'm not traveling too much, I'm pretty assiduous about my nutrition, but I have no idea. I have no idea, but my father looks similarly. So there's definitely something in the genes. Well, hey, fascinating stuff. I know it's just the beginning for what you're doing. 
obviously the book is called The Sports Gene, but where else can people find, because you're doing them way beyond this stuff. Yeah, I mean, my my writing appears in, in sort of various places, but uh, if, if they follow me on things like Twitter, um, when those articles appear, wherever they appear, I, I'm usually sending them around. Thanks for your time, David. Thank you.